Good evening, Jamie. Welcome to twist number six on refrigerants. My name is Felicia Etzcorn. This is This Week in Sustainability. And Hello, Felicia. Good evening. How are you? I'm good. This is Jamie Ferguson, my co-host from Emory and Henry. Welcome back. Okay, so we want to talk about refrigerants and um, I think Jamie's going to tell us a little bit about how refrigerants work. Okay, so we'll start off with how uh, refrigeration in your body works, which is uh, based on sweat. So how does sweating make you cool off? Water is brought to the surface of your skin, and when water passes from the liquid phase to the vapor phase to a gas, uh, it, in doing so, it pulls heat out of your uh, out of your skin. Um, Sweating. The, yes. So so it is the evaporative part. If you only sweat and the sweat never evaporated, it wouldn't actually cool you off. So it is the act of water passing from the liquid phase into the gas phase, and the, only the most energetic molecules are the ones that break off out of the lipid phase into the gas phase. And that means that the mo molecules left in the water on your skin uh, are, on average, they have less energy of motion because their highest energy molecules just left them. And so that uh, temperature is average kinetic energy of motion of molecules. So now your skin is a little bit cooler because that average amount of molecular motion is, is, is less. Does this mean that at, um, in a humid environment, it's not very efficient to sweat? It's not very cooling efficient if right. it's high humidity, but right. out, in, out in the desert, it would work great. Yeah. Yeah. So it, the escape from the liquid phase to the gas phase is made harder by there being already a bunch of water molecules competing for spots in the gas phase, which is, which is high humidity. And so at low humidity, that evaporation happens more readily. Um, but the heat of vaporization is the same uh, one way or the other. So there's a certain number of joules per mole of water that are pulled out of, of you know, the liquid phase when those gas phase molecules evaporate. But okay. so, so that's how you know, um, evaporation cools, evaporative cooling. And so in a refrigerator, uh, a liquid goes into the refrigerator and is, uh, uh, absorbs heat from the contents of the fridge. And, and that heat is channeled into the evaporation from the liquid phase to the gas phase. Now these high energy gas phase molecules pass through your, you know, refrigeration tubes out of your refrigerator and into uh, a space where they get compressed. And the reason that they get compressed is because uh, a boiling temperature is the temperature at which molecules have enough energy of motion that their vapor phase is equal to the, uh, the, the pressure of their vapor phase is equal to atmospheric pressure. If atmospheric pressure were lower, then it wouldn't take as much energy of motion to 
uh, to break free of the liquid phase into the gas phase. And so lowering, temp lowering the atmospheric pressure decreases a boiling point. But by the so same token, increasing the atmospheric pressure is going to increase a boiling point because the force of uh, gas phase above a liquid is pressing down harder on it. So it takes more energy of motion to escape. So if you compress and compress the system, you are driving, uh, you are driving up the boiling point. Right. So and it so, turns into a liquid. So it turns into a liquid because if you at if you just keep the same temperature, let's say 40 degrees Celsius, you just keep that same uh, temperature and it was a gas, but now you compress it. And if you're driving the boiling point up above 40 degrees Celsius to say 50, then now that compressed gas is at a temperature below its boiling point. So it wants to be a liquid, so it condenses then that condensed liquid. So those are the condenser coils on the back of our refrigerator, right? Right. And so the, the compressor is smashing all of this gas phase into the same space, making it higher and higher pressure until it gets to a pressure at which it is below its boiling temperature at that same temperature. Then it condenses and, uh, and then the condensed liquid can exchange, can, uh, if it is hotter than the surroundings, it can exchange heat with its surroundings. Which it will be, right? After, after it's been through the, after it's absorbed the heat energy from the inside of the refrigerator, it has to get rid of that heat outside of the refrigerator, right? right? Right, right. So let's say that, that your refrigerant comes out of the refrigerator at zero degrees Celsius and it, and it uh, is compressed and then it travels up to you know, the roof of your building. And let's say that it's a hot day and it's 100 degrees Fahrenheit or you know, what would that be? Oh, about 40, it's 37, 30, 38. About 40 degrees. So yeah. in order for in order for that to get uh, in order for that to get rid of its heat that it has absorbed, it needs to try to temperature equilibrate with its surroundings. So you need to uh, you need to compress that refrigerant. It it will have been zero degrees, you know, Celsius when it left your fridge, and it is going to end up being. Uh, the outside is, is 40 degrees Celsius up on your roof. So you need to compress it enough that even at 40 degrees Celsius, once it warms to that, uh, it's still going to, it's still going, you need to compress it enough that it's still going to want to exchange heat to the surroundings. Right, right. So you compress it enough so it's hotter than the surroundings whatever they may be. Yeah. Yeah. So it gets, I guess, so it gets hotter. You might correct me if I'm wrong about that, but I think so that it gets hotter, but it's under enough pressure that, uh, that it stays it is liquid. remaining a liquid. Yeah. 
Yep. And then it would cool to the temperature of the outside, dump its heat, and then it's piped back in and through Expanded. expansion. Yeah. It is it it is I think of it like a garden hose, you know, with the sprayer. It's expanded back into it it, it the pressure rapidly drops going from inside of that compressed system back into your your cold box, your refrigerator. And so let's see, expanding rapidly it's like expanding evaporation, sort of. Yeah. Yeah, something about rapidly expanding gas is cooler, I think. So, and so then if the temperature of the refrigerant is lower than the temperature inside of the refrigerator, then it will absorb heat from the refrigerator. The heat, and we're off to the same cycle. So just to summarize, then we have, um, well, I'll, I'll start with that step. So. So you have the compressed liquid goes into the refrigerator, expands into a bigger volume and cools into that bigger volume inside the refrigerator. So there's a valve. There has to be a valve in between the high pressure and the low pressure inside the um, refrigerator. And then that cooling sucks the heat back in to that gas. And then the gas is pumped back out into the external coils where it's compressed. And then that complicated idea that it releases its heat to the atmosphere um, and it's compressed again in the compressor back into that liquid state. Is that a pretty good summary? Mm-hmm. You know, when I was looking into um, refrigeration, it's partly because of concern over global warming and refrigeration contributes a great deal to global warming because not only are you burning fossil fuels typically to supply the energy for that compressor. And this goes for refrigerators, air conditioners, car air conditioners, all sorts of air conditioning systems all use refrigerants. And usually you're using the same kind of refrigerant in all of those applications. So not only are you using fossil fuels in the work energy to compress the gas, there's also heat released externally. And because it's not completely 100% efficient, otherwise you could just somehow magically have this perfect machine that wouldn't require any work input in the form of energy. And it would just be cool on the inside of the box and hot on the outside. And you wouldn't have to put energy into that compression cycle. So um, it's not. So efficiency is a big deal in terms of refrigerants, but you're also releasing heat. Um, so there's sort of two ways that refrigeration contributes to global warming. So, and, and also pollution, and we'll talk a lot about pollution. So back in the early 
1900s, maybe even late 1800s, when they were trying to get away from having ice boxes where they actually delivered ice to, from, you know, northern part of the United States to the southern. And I don't know how they did it. I mean, how they had refrigeration ice boxes back then. Um, commercially, they transitioned to refrigerants that were, it was ammonia. And ammonia was a very efficient refrigerant, but it was toxic. So if there was a release, you didn't want to put it in people's homes because if you got a pinprick leak in that compressor, it would be extremely toxic to breathe ammonia. If you've ever opened a bottle of ammonia that's dissolved in water, you don't want to put your nose straight over the top of that because um, it's really bad for your lungs. Ammonia is a, a nucleophile, it's a reactive nucleophile. And so that's, you know, um, it can react with a lot of things in our bodies and really mess up the biochemistry. So high toxicity. So that was only for commercial purposes. And then in 1928, Freon was discovered. And there's a bunch of different Freons there. Well, there's three of them really. And they're all one carbon and then either, you know, then they have fluorine or chlorine, a combination of which there are four, four fluorine chlorines. So it could be CF3Cl, CF2Cl2, or CFCl3. Okay. So the most commonly used one is Freon 1,2, which is CF2Cl2. And I won't go into the nomenclature. I kind of hate nomenclature. It's a really bizarre nomenclature. It's a nomenclature. Yeah, for... bizarre. I, I, I understand it, but it's not worth explaining it. It has no relevance to what we're talking about. So the cool thing about Freon was that it's stable and non-toxic at ground level. Um, it, it's not reactive. And so you could breathe it in, breathe it out. I mean, it could smother you just like, you know, breathing too much carbon monoxide. Well, that's not a good analogy because that's a different mechanism. But, but you could, if you just had pure nitrogen fill up a room, you would die because you don't have any oxygen. And that, that would, you know, it could smother you the same way. So, you know, or methane, like if you have a methane gas leak. So I just think about like how chemists back then must have been deciding what to use as a refrigerant. And I, I guess to, to be a good refrigerant, you need to have a boiling point that is in some accessible temperature range for what pressure you can, you can create in an enclosed system, whether that is vacuum or or high pressure, I, I suppose. Maybe yeah. there are refrigerators that are run under under a vacuum. I, I I don't think so. I think it's a pressure. It's they're mostly compressors. Um, but you're right. It's an engineering phenomenon. Like what kind? How 
high of a pressure can you attain? Do you have a strong enough container? And we'll get to that later when we talk about CO2. So yeah, they were just looking at something that would condense in the pressure region that they could access and that would evaporate at a reasonable temperature to cool. So that they, they were looking at the physical properties of these things. And it just turned out that Freon had these good properties. Um, the trouble was in 50 years later. 95 was the Nobel Prize. Oh, 95 was the Nobel 50 years later would have been 75. Yeah, it was about 78, 75, 78 in that region where Molina and I can't remember the other guy's name. Um, Roland. Roland, right. They uh, discovered that these freons, these chlorofluorocarbons were destroying the ozone up in the stratosphere. Um, and the stratosphere is the layer where ozone is created and sort of dynamically stable up there. Um, dynamically stable, meaning that it's created and breaks down continuously. And it absorbs um, both UVC light from 200 to 280 nanometers, as well as UVB light from 280 to 315. So we're protected from the worst rays of the sun. Um, to a certain extent that even protects us from sunburn. So I have a friend who, she's Australian, and little kids were all wearing these hats with protection for their neck and their face, you know, big bills. And they, they had these sort of capes on the back of their hats to protect their necks because there's, you know, it was bad for a while. And the ozone layer has been coming back as we've gotten away from freons. But the way this happens is that these molecules have chlorine atoms and they're not very strongly bonded to the carbon. And then the chlorine atoms will, the UV light will actually break off that chlorine atom and then it will react with the ozone and turn it back into, I believe, dioxygen, the oxygen that we breathe, and like oxychloride radical. And so it's, it was just sort of continuously destroying the ozone. It was like a catalyst. And one chlorine atom could destroy many ozone molecules. Um, and create oxygen in the process. So, you you know, the oxygen's still up there, but it's just in the form of oxygen instead of ozone. So that was really bad news. And so they had, you know, sort of like, now we have the Paris um, Agreement. Back then it was the Montreal Protocol to protect the ozone layer. And they came up with HCFCs because they thought that would be better. And HCFCs have a hydrogen, like the one that was used the most, um, R22, 
has one hydrogen, two fluorines, and one chlorine. Again, still four atoms surrounding the central carbon. But one of those was hydrogen. So carbon-hydrogen bonds are much stronger than carbon-chlorine bonds. Plus, by having a hydrogen there, you're not destabilizing the carbon-chlorine bond as much. The, the fluorines are what actually destabilize the carbon-chlorine bond. So carbon-fluorine has a strong bond and it sort of weakens the carbon-chlorine bond. But hydrogen is kind of more neutral. It doesn't, it's not, it's, it's a strong bond, but it's not very polarized. It's not pulling the electrons away from the carbon the way fluorine does. So it turns out that R22 still depleted the ozone layer and it had a high global warming potential. So that wasn't the best. So then they switched to HFCs with no chlorines, just HFCs. So those turn out to be really good because they're not releasing, there's no chlorine in them. They're not releasing chlorine atoms. You're not destroying the ozone. The problem is they still, these HFCs that have hydrogen, fluorine, and carbon um, do protect the ozone layer. So they're good, they're good refrigerants in that way, but they still have high global warming potential because they absorb infrared radiation. And that is a subject for like a whole nother podcast. <laughs> I don't wanna get it too much into um, global warming and what causes that. But just in terms of this current era of refrigerants, that's kind of where we are right now is these HCFs, HFCs, HFCs, no chlorine. So it's mm -hmm. super important not to release the HFCs into the atmosphere. So really, you know, a refrigerator or car air conditioner that, you know, goes stops working or when a car goes to the dump, those refrigerants should be drained by a professional and trapped. And they're not always. So that's a bad thing. Plus, you know, you could get into a car accident where it just breaks it open and then you're screwed. You're releasing those things. Um, so for example, one of the most common ones is HFC 134A, and it, this is um, got, it's an ethane derivative. So it has two carbons and four fluorine atoms, three of them attached to one carbon and one of them attached to the other carbon of, of the ethane and two hydrogens. So it's, it's an HFC, but it has a global warming potential over the course of a hundred years, that is 1,430 times as potent as carbon dioxide. You may have heard that methane has a global warming potential that's 25 times as potent as carbon dioxide. That's that 
GWP number. The, the global warming potential is based on everything relative to CO2. So this is 1,400 times as potent as CO2. And so, does that does that 25 um, for methane, uh, is that uh, also counting its lifetime in the atmosphere? It's the 100 year. It's the 100 year. So it's, so it's attenuated. OK. So sort of instantaneously, I've heard numbers like 40. So if yeah. you just take it over the course of a year or something, it's about 40 times as bad as CO2. But methane is more reactive than CO2. And so it breaks down and it diminishes over time. But it's still over 100 years, methane is still 25 times as bad as CO2. So this and is that per mole or is that per kilogram? I'm, I wonder. Oh, good question. I don't know. I, I think I've always thought of it as per mole, but you know, these are the difference in chemists. I always think of it as per mole, but that's the way I think. Yeah. And, and, and it, it's, it's like, so what's a mole, Jamie? <laughs> a mole is a little, a little rodent that, you know, goes into the ground around this time of the year. <laughs> <laughs> um, no. so the, what we're talking about is comparing it on a molecule by molecule basis like is a molecule of co2 the same as a molecule of methane a kilogram of co2 right the same as a kilogram of co2 the same as a kilogram of yeah which is different because they have different atoms yeah. in and them. engineers tend to like to do things on a per mass basis, whereas, whereas chemists like to do on a per mole? So that's a good question. I don't know the answer to that. We'll have to look that up for our global warming um, podcast at some time in the future. So now the new one that it's still an HFC and now it has three carbons and a carbon-carbon double bond. It's called HFO1234YF. And it has four fluorine atoms, three carbons, and two hydrogens. And it's a, a propene derivative. So... This has a global warming potential of less than one. And that seems to be what the US automakers are going to as the, you know, oh great, the global warming potential is less than one. So no problem, right? Well, some engineers, automobile engineers at Mercedes-Benz did an experiment or did a series of experiments and they had their refrigerated car engine or, you know, next to the car engine in their automobile and with a hot engine and compressor oil mixed with the HFO1234YF, um, that's a really awkward name, um, this thing was, this stuff is really flammable. 
So now you think, okay, we've got these two carbon hydrogen bonds and a double bond. This thing is bound to be more flammable, like a hydrocarbon, like petroleum. And it gave off HF. Okay. Let's talk about HF. Let's talk about HF. So the story that, you know, was burned into my understanding in undergrad was the story of the, uh, the, the geologists or archaeologists in Australia who accidentally splashed some HF on his leg while, while uh, you know, demineralizing something at a, at a dig. And and he died, you know. He a, a splash on <sighs> a splash of HF on on his his thigh on his upper leg. That was enough, you know. He they so yeah. I mean, it was crazy. We had when I was working as a radio chemist in Kansas City, they used to do these ring closing aromatization reactions. They'd have you know an aromatic ring, and you'd have a carboxylic acid and it would you would use hf as a lewis acid catalyst for um, friedel crafts acylation and do the ring closing so they just would they would actually just run this with hf in the hood and this hood was just dedicated to that it had the windows were completely etched you know you couldn't see through them because hf will actually eat away the glass um and <laughs> this, did you ever watch Breaking Bad? I did. Um, I wasn't. So I watched like two episodes. And it, I think it was like the second episode, something. Anyway, here they are proposing that this high school chemistry teacher could walk into their storeroom and pick up four gallons of HF, concentrated HF, and he gives it to his stupid flunky and he says, get rid of the body. Be sure to buy a big plastic tub because HF doesn't react with the plastic. And the flunky's like, well, uh, why not use the bathtub? And, <laughs> and so, so he, he dumps the body and the four gallons of HF into the, the bathtub. And of course it eats right through the enamel and the, you know, metal of the tub, the iron, and the wood of the floor, and the whole thing comes crashing through the ceiling of this house. And I was like, okay, this is completely absurd. I'm not watching the rest of this. <laughs> it was just the most ridiculous, you know, no way is a high school chemistry teacher going to have access to this stuff. It's, it's so, so toxic. toxic. And it's, that, uh, yeah, you wouldn't be giving this to high school students anyway. So, the, so it, what we're getting to is that this new refrigerant uh, evolved HF gas. Uh, it was given off in the fire. And, you know, um, so my background is ionic liquids and some of the most useful anions uh, for making ionic liquids are tetrafluoroborate and hexafluorophosphate. And they make beautiful liquids that are non-coordinating that you can do all kinds of things with. Uh, but but by the time I arrived for my PhD, my supervisor 
was was like pretty much for for all but a very few select projects he was like no bf4 no pf6 for nothing because they will they will spontaneously decompose on you and form hf and make and, hf uh, and it's and it's deadly so yeah yeah so that's kind of where it stands now the environmental um normal decomposition of this fluorocarbon the environmental release creates um trifluoroacetic acid but it's also pretty nasty you don't want to be breathing tfa either so this is yeah the global warming potential is less than one but the byproducts of the decomposition, whether it's by fire or just by environmental release, are both really toxic. I wish I. So that brings us. Yeah. I was just gonna say, I wish I understood what it is about about halogenated small, you know, hydrocarbon halo hydrocarbon materials that make them so ideal in terms of their pressure you know well diagrams i mean like there were i think for a while there were actually propane refrigerators so it just has to be you know a gas at normal atmospheric pressure and a liquid when you compress it um so the the problem with propane of course is that it's so flammable that's what you use you know if you live out in the country mm -hmm. that's what you run your gas stove mm -hmm. off of um so so how that's why they switch to the fluorine for the lack of flammability and and so you can see that in a lot of other chemical products when they're wanting something which is non-flammable uh, that they reach for the carbon fluorine bond um, is not oxidizable and so or even like carbon bromine and we'll we'll get to that with flame retardants at some point i'd like to talk about flame retardants and i have a guess that i want to get for that too so we'll come to that but that's all that's the way i think about it is gas at room atmospheric pressure yeah you know compressible so here it is so so they were they they knew a lot about ammonia around the early 20th century because they were just what, what the the Haber-Bosch process was around the turn of the century and so ammonia was something that they were finding lots of use for ammonia is this you know chemical species that at room temperature is a gas but you can cool it to a liquid you you know there are chemical reactions that you or cool it uh you know and then if you think about the there's one substance which works well is room temperature gas but you could cool it to get to its liquid you know with something you know how to use and then butane is a c4 molecule it is under slight pressure uh, a, a liquid um, you know that's what's in your butane lighters so if you go something a little bit smaller something a little more volatile then you're in a hydrocarbon that is kind of maybe similar to similar to ammonia in its boiling point but the problem is that it is flammable. And so then what do you do? You want to make it non-flammable. So trading CH bonds for CF bonds. And that's how we arrive right. at the 
refrigerants that we have today. Is that right? Seem about right? Yeah. Yeah. I think that's the evolution of it, essentially. But now we come to what those German engineers decided was a better course of action after their experiments showed that, you know, this, this latest HFC wasn't good enough because it wasn't safe, carbon dioxide itself. And so it has a global warming potential of one, which is way better than the European standard, which it has to be GWP less than 150. Um, so, so CO2 is great. It's very non-reactive. Um, it's, you know, it, funny thing is we talk about it all the time because, you know, that's, that's the global warming gas, right? Comes from burning fossil fuels, but it's much better than all of the alternatives for refrigerants. And the, the thing about CO2 is you can, you could suck it out of the atmosphere. We can buy, as chemists, we can buy tanks of carbon dioxide, or we can buy solid carbon dioxide, which is called dry ice. Actually, most people can buy it in the grocery store. Um, probably did for Halloween, because it creates that spooky atmosphere you know, it's, it's, it's all around us and it's relatively cheap. Um, so the disadvantage is kind of there, the, actually both the advantages and the disadvantages are kind of engineering problems, not chemical problems. Um, the disadvantage is that you have to operate in what's called the transcritical regime, which is greater than 73 atmospheres of pressure for carbon dioxide. And what that requires is stronger containers and special valves for the refrigeration cycle. So you, you're putting it under much higher pressure than the other refrigerants that we've mm. used. To, and you partly you have to do that because it's, um, See, CO2, if, if you're at normal pressures, is either a gas or a solid. And it goes straight from solid to gas phase at atmospheric pressure. But if you're above the critical pressure, then it can be a liquid. Or really not a liquid, but a supercritical fluid it's strange. It has properties of liquid and it has properties of gas. It's like no other physical state that we are used to thinking about. And we don't experience it directly because it has to be under high pressure and, and usually elevated temperatures as well. There is a supercritical state for water, but it's not accessible with our current you know, sort of engineering technologies. Right. It, so, it, it occurs at a higher temperature than uh, is workable for a lot of chemistry because uh, that temperature region is high enough that a lot of things thermally degrade. So unless your goal is to thermally break down, let's say, uh, you know, persistent organic pollutants, <laughs> 
that need to be chemically ripped yeah. apart, uh, then, you know, that that supercritical water is under some pretty harsh conditions. So that's that's why we don't use it in chemistry. Yeah. So so just to give um, give you an idea of the critical points. So there's two critical points. There's the critical pressure and the critical temperature. So for carbon dioxide, the critical temperature is only 31 degrees centigrade, which is like 88 Fahrenheit. It's not that high. It's very accessible. Like that happens in the summer here. And the critical pressure is, uh, I don't have it in atmospheres, a thousand PSI. Mm -hmm. that, that's, that's 73 um, atmospheres. It's just over, it's just, it's just over 73. So that's, the, you know, you just need a stronger box and, you know, stronger tubes to hold it. And you can run it, you know, with special valves that can contain the CO2, then you can do refrigeration with CO2. And it has higher efficiency and higher volumetric capacity. So you can actually have smaller refrigeration units to do the same job. So that's the upside. That's the advantage, the engineering advantage of CO2. So I think as far as green chemistry goes and as far as sustainability, that seems to me to be what what we should do it sorry does that mean that it's easier to compress no because you have to get to such high pressures but it, its efficiency is higher and like the i don't know what volumetric capacity means exactly but it i feel um, like i tried to figure that out i'm not an engineer <laughs> i'm not an engineer i'm, I'm bad not at either this. Volumetric heat capacity means of the material means the heat capacity of a sample of a substance divided by the volume of the sample. Okay, so um, higher, it's a higher heat capacity per volume, per unit of volume. Okay. That's something a chemist can understand, right? When it's a liquid. When it's or when it's a supercritical fluid, it has a lot of heat capacity. Yeah, it's different for each state of matter. What I got for CO2 was that operating within a temperature range of let's say zero degrees Fahrenheit for the for the I guess the boiling point to be zero degrees Fahrenheit would be a, a pressure about 300 psi, and for it to be around 80. It need to be a pressure of about a thousand psi or seventy three atmospheres. So seventy three atmospheres is kind of some number to get stuck in your head for if it were going to exchange heat with a with the environment on a warm day of eighty degrees Fahrenheit. Mm -hmm. I think I kind of thought the volumetric heat capacity had more to do with the gas phase. Um, so that would be the expansion phase in the refrigerator because 
the capacity of the gas to absorb that heat from the refrigeration unit, I think is what's important in terms of the size of the unit. That I think that's what allows it to be a smaller unit. Like as a gas, CO2 has a higher specific heat capacity. Mm -hmm. Just from my limited understanding. Mm -hmm. So I think we're good. So we've talked about, I think Jamie summarized it pretty nicely going from ammonia to the HFCs. And then really the best alternative seems to be carbon dioxide as a refrigerant. It just requires stronger engineering or better engineering controls. So you got to build a better box. So I think we figured out that this one's not on us, right, Felicia? This one's on the engineers. This this is their problem. Yeah, this one's not on the chemists anymore. We've we've given them CO2. Here. That's right. (laughs) Here's your CO2. Make of it a refrigerant. Please. If if, if this belongs, if this problem belongs to any chemist, it's, it's, uh, who, who makes new alloys in organic chemists? Yes. Yes. Metallurgists, right? Maybe they can make it out of like carbon fiber materials or something. Chemists could make, could help, but, oh, by the way, this ties in with the cool roofs because we talked about refrigerant or, you know, air conditioning in that episode. And the idea that you could use these multi-layered um, coatings on at, as a material, a thin layer of material to reflect heat out back out through that hole in the spectrum and and cool things even during the day um and by reflecting that heat you cool the you pre-cool that fluid so this would be a way to help release that heat on the back side of the refrigeration cycle mm-hmm. right so it it ties in with that as well and so if you could combine those special materials on the roof that reflect that heat back out into outer space and that would pre-cool your or or cool your your compressor coils then that would make it a lot easier for it to do the work of compression and it would use less energy Mm -hmm. i actually called that company uh, or not called, I emailed them and uh, asked if they work with small colleges because uh, they said they were still in the pilot stage. So it would be cool. Yeah, I want I want those windows for my house that have a that are six times as insulating as glass and just as clear. They say they're just as clear. <laughs> I'd like to look out one. That, that, I'm skeptical. Well, he's got pictures. They've got pictures and they've got graphs for the clarity and the, you know, the amount of light gets through them. Mm -hmm. It's pretty cool. It was pretty cool. 
Okay, so this has been Twist, This Week in Sustainability. We've talked about refrigerants from ammonia to carbon dioxide tonight. And I'd like to thank my co-host, Jamie Ferguson, as well as the music. I haven't mentioned this in the audio portion, but music was created and performed by Wendy Godley. Yes, I like the music. <laughs> it has a twist to it, musically. Or does it? Might have to get you to play fiddle, a fiddle track on top of it sometime. <laughs> you could look into that. <laughs> All right. So good night. Good night, Felicia. Um, good. Think about it. Don't overthink it. But think about it. Here's another haiku from Elemental Haiku by Mary Soon Lee. Chlorine, low road or high road, World War I, gas in trenches, or salt shared, tears shed. Chlorine was deployed to terrible effect in the trench warfare of World War I, as was mustard gas, a chlorine compound. Salt, sodium chloride, was a valuable trade commodity in the past, and the sharing of bread and salt has symbolic importance in several cultures. Tears contain a small percentage of salt. Bye now.